0: First service laughed, second service clapped, third service just stared while that happened. So, <clears throat> I don't know which one of those we did right, Adam, but <laughs> uh, if you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be in the middle chunk of that chapter, verses 13 down to 35. And as you get yourself kind of opened up to there, if you've got a hard copy Bible, um, as you flip if you're swiping on a device and getting yourself settled there, I want to invite you to consider something with me. I want you to think back to the last time in your life you would say you were kind of having like mountaintop sort of spiritual experience with Jesus. The highlight verse of today's section is a statement that two individuals make to one another after an interaction with the resurrected Jesus. If you've got it open, it's verse 32. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? When was the last time your heart burned within you with a passion for Jesus? If you're a student, maybe you went to Camp Barnabas and the week at camp or, you know, right after camp, you sort of felt like you were having that, my heart is burning with passion for Jesus. It could be that a recent season of life, for whatever reason, um, because of the way that the Lord met you in the middle of those circumstances, you felt like your heart was really burning with this passion for Christ. It might be that you are sitting and thinking and it's, years and years and years ago. Like you might be thinking all the way back to when you were in high school and you had camp or when you came to know the Lord, and that's the last time you really felt like there was this burning passion for Christ inside of you. I want to unpack this idea of our hearts burning inside of us this morning, and I want you to hold that image in your mind. I also want to draw a bit of a parallel. If you're married— you'll be familiar with this. If you're not married yet, you'll, I think you'll understand what I'm describing. But our kind of prevailing American view has this romanticized idea of love and marriage that you're going to come upon the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. You're going to fall deeply in love with them. And every day from that point forward is going to be this like, my heart is burning inside of me for this person. And if you're not married, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. But sometimes, like, it's just Tuesday. Like, you've been married for years, and you're committed to this person, but, like, it's just Tuesday. I mean, I love them, but this is just another day. And then other times, there are whole seasons, in your marriage where because of external circumstances that might be taking place or something that's happened within the marriage relationship that's put a rift there, you wake up in the morning and you wish it could just be normal Tuesday. Like I would give anything in the context of this relationship for us to be able to just have Tuesday. Instead, I wake up in the morning and I look at this person and there are no gushy feelings whatsoever anywhere inside of me and I'm committed to this person I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not like heading for the door or anything, but this is hard. And my feelings for this person right now are complicated. And it's up and down and it's all over the place. And our kind of romanticized idea of marriage in our culture is that if the burning passion isn't there, just move on. Just leave that behind and go find a spot where the burning passion will be there. And maybe if you try it enough times, you'll happen upon the person that you do burn with passion for every single day. But it's, it's unrealistic. A danger within modern American Christianity is this idea that in a similar fashion, if your emotions aren't running on high within your spiritual experience, something must be wrong. Maybe something's wrong with God. Maybe something's wrong with the church that you're a part of, and what you really need to do is just go to a different church that lights the emotions on fire a little bit more, and then things will be better. Well, when was the last time you felt like you really burned with passion for Jesus? Where are you now? When did the flame go out? Why? I mean, those are things that you probably can't unpack all within the context of our service this morning. But I would invite you to consider when was that time and where are you now? And when did that flame feel like it maybe simmered down a little bit and why? And what's the gap between those things? Hold that in your mind this morning. We're going to read... Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. And what I want us to do this morning is we're gonna kind of step back and we're gonna do some big picture context because I think there's a very profound aspect to the gospel of Luke that we see in this section that I wanna point out. Then we'll walk our way through the text and kind of understand what's happening. And then my hope is to make following Jesus simple this morning. My hope is to sort of peel back some layers based on what we're seeing here in order to say that We don't have to be subject to the whims of emotional experience in order to have hearts that burn with passion for Jesus. It's actually much more simple than that. So if you've got your Bible open, i invite you to follow along with me. This is Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. And then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you were walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. One man named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb. When they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further, but they urged him to stay. Or they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what happened on the road and how he had made known to them or how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that as your spirit here among us takes the truth of your word and opens our hearts and minds to it, God, that we would just rest and rejoice in the presence of Jesus. God, would you help us to see him clearly in your word? And would his presence and the clarity of who he is cause our hearts to burn within us with a passion for him and for his glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Landing place this morning is this. That the presence and reality of Jesus light a flame in the hearts of his people. The presence and the reality of Jesus light a flame in the hearts of his people. Let's start big picture. Last week, I broke Luke 24 into three pieces. Verses one through 12 is the tomb account on resurrection morning. Some women go there, and the most notable thing in the whole chunk there is that Jesus is not present. In fact, that's the thing that gets them excited. He's not there. Then in verses 13 to 35, two men have an experience where they actually lay eyes on the resurrected Jesus. Now, there's a lot that's in there, and we'll walk our way through it, but they actually see with their own eyes Jesus resurrected. And then in verses 36 to 52, Jesus among the disciples there, there's the reality of resurrected, authoritative, and ascended Jesus. This morning I want to offer you a second way to think about this chapter. The word open is used three different times, once in each one of those sections. In the first account, verses 1 through 12, it's the tomb that's open and it's empty. No body there. In verses 13 through 35, it is the uh, eyes of these two disciples in verse 31 that are opened and they recognize Jesus. In verses 36 down to 52, it's the minds of the disciples that are opened and they understand the scriptures. All of that centers on Jesus. An open tomb, open eyes, open minds. The tomb's open and Jesus isn't there. Their eyes are open and they understand that it's Jesus that's with them. Their minds are open and they understand the scriptures and everything that that means for the Messiah. Notice another thing. Luke positions the final, what we have is the final chapter, but the final few scenes of his gospel account as all happening in one day. On the first day of the week, Luke 24, verse one. Now that same day, verse 13, they then... After realizing that it's Jesus that's with them, we're told that very hour they get up and they return to Jerusalem. Then there's a last scene with the disciples and the ascension. In Luke 24, it appears that all of this happens back to back to back in one day. But if you flip to Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Luke says that Jesus was with the disciples for a period of 40 days. And that he appeared to the disciples on multiple occasions and to many other people. Now, Luke wrote the book of Acts. It's a logical question. What happened here? Did all of this happen on one day and then Luke reboots the whole thing and puts it over a period of 40 days? Well, that can't be the case because all the gospel writers position the ascension as happening not on the same day as the resurrection. So what is Luke doing? As we've walked through the Gospel of Luke, I've tried to give a repeated reminder that Luke's aim in his Gospel account is primarily theological, not strictly chronological. Throughout his account of Jesus' life and ministry, he's used timestamps very sparingly. For instance, we know that Jesus' ministry was roughly a period of three years. But if you were to read it from Luke 4 all the way up to the crucifixion, it would seem like it happens over the period of a few months. Luke isn't regularly telling you, now it's been this long since this thing happened, then this long. He gives you timestamps every once in a while along the account. In this passage, he gives one at the start on the first day of the week and one in verse 13, now that same day. I don't know where the big chunk of passage of time happens in Luke chapter 24. Seems most likely that somewhere between the disciples leaving the Cleopas and the other follower leaving to find the disciples in Jerusalem to when they actually encounter them. There's probably some passage of time that takes place there. I also don't know that that's what's most important to Luke. What's most important to Luke is understanding who Jesus is, and so he writes these three accounts almost as if they're one seamless narrative. He gives an important contextual detail at the very start. Verse 13, the same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. Modern scholars aren't 100% sure where the city of Emmaus was. You put a kind of a pin in Jerusalem and you go seven miles out and then you draw yourself a big circle. It's somewhere inside of there. Luke's readers would have known where it was. It's just been a long time since then. And there's not absolute certainty on that city. And I point that out for this reason. It's a pretty good walk. Seven miles is going to take you three or four hours, probably. We can't be sure where along the way Jesus comes upon these two individuals, but it seems as though he had a pretty good deal of time with them. Verse 18, the one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happen there in these days? It would appear that they're still fairly close to Jerusalem when Jesus happens upon them because that's the anchor point for what Cleopas has to say. Are you the only person around here who doesn't understand everything that's happened? So Jesus is with them for a good deal of time. And then one last contextual piece. We get the name of one of the two individuals. Verse 18 tells us that his name is Cleopas. The other's not named. And there's a lot of mystery that surrounds that other person. In fact, early Christian thinkers and scholars believed that Luke was the second man present that the reason he has this account is because it's Cleopas and Luke, and Luke is able to include the addition of this account because he was there. Modern scholarship believes that Cleopas is the source of this material. If you take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you smash them uh, all together as one sort of unit, we call them the synoptic gospels. They share the same bones, essentially. Most scholars believe that Mark is the first source And then Luke and Matthew use the structure and the framework of Mark to build out their own accounts. And so when Luke says, I've investigated everything from the beginning, it's very possible. He means, I've heard the gospel of Mark, and now I've searched these things out to try to verify them. Three individual gospels that share kind of one framework, very similar to your family. You're unique individuals, but you share the vast majority of your DNA, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of function in that way. But the resurrection day accounts at the tomb and on the road to Emmaus are one of the largest narrative additions that Luke puts onto the framework of Mark. There are long teaching sections in the gospel of Luke that Mark does not record, but narrative. This is one of the biggest chunks of that. And modern scholars believe that it's because Luke knows Cleopas, Luke knows Joanna, most likely, is what scholars believe in the resurrection tomb account. And so what is Luke doing? He's citing his sources, essentially. Now, in modern scholarship, we put little footnotes down at the bottom and we say where we got our material from so that someone can go find it. In ancient days, Luke is doing his level best to say, don't take my word for it. Go find Joanna. She'll tell you about the tomb." Go find Cleopas. He'll tell you about this walk. And when was it? It was the same day as the resurrection. And where did it take place? Between here and Emmaus. I'm giving you all of my source material, showing you all of my work. Why does Luke do that? All the way back to the start of the book. First four verses of Luke say that many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. He wants his reader, Theophilus, and hearers and readers to have certainty about this stuff. And so he's telling them, if you doubt me, go talk to these people. Here's where and when and how this played out. And why do I mention any of this this morning? Last week, I mentioned to those who are skeptical to start with Jesus. I gave some resources. We sent them out in our weekly email that if you want to look at the events of Jesus's life and investigate them for yourself, here are some ways that you can do that. Don't start with all the secondary and tertiary stuff. Start with the main thing. Did this man die and resurrect? That's what really matters. But you may have noticed last week, that I didn't include the Bible as one of those resources. I gave all sorts of extra biblical, outside of the Bible resources. Well, the Bible's the most important resource on this topic. And I think it's worth noting that Luke is doing his due diligence to provide within his account verifiable facts to prove what he's saying. He's making wild claims about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's talking about something that is miraculous and irrational and sounds illogical that this man died, that he was buried, and on the third day that he rose from the dead. And he's using the best practices from his day to support those claims and provide certainty for his readers. Luke's a doctor, he's highly intelligent, he's highly logical and rational. And yet he's making these bold claims about the resurrection of a human being. And he says, here's here's me trying to give you everything so that you could go see this and talk to these people yourself and have certainty about this. That is amazing and glorious to me that God in his wisdom, providence, kindness, and grace would use the Holy Spirit to inspire this particular man with those particular gifts and with that particular personality and disposition to provide an account of the life of the son so that humanity would know with certainty the grace of salvation. That's amazing to me. Oftentimes we open up scripture and if we've been at church for a long time, we've got sort of a framework tucked into the back of our mind that this is the inspired word of God. But we don't usually spend a lot of time thinking about how that must have functioned in order for the word to actually be delivered to us. Well, God chose actual people and inspired them by the Holy Spirit and then allowed the Spirit to use that person's gifts and Passions and intellect and disposition and personality to produce for you the revelation of the gospel. And in the person of Luke, Luke is saying, The sources matter to me because I'm logical and I realize that what I'm telling you is way outside the bounds of normal human experience. But this man rose from the dead, and if you want to check it for yourself, find Cleopas, find Joanna. It was on that road over there. That's amazing to me and wondrous and glorious and an obvious grace of the Lord to those of us who would read his word and want to know for sure. And so if you are skeptical, also use the Bible, but understand exactly what it is that you're reading and how it is that it functions. Now let's dig in to the account. We're told that on the day of the resurrection, these two guys are leaving Jerusalem, Cleopas and one other individual. They're traveling to Emmaus, seven miles away. We're not told why they're leaving. It's possible that Emmaus is their home and they're leaving Jerusalem to go back. It's possible that things are already heating up in Jerusalem for those that were identified as followers of Jesus and everybody is scattering for their own safety. Either way, Regardless for the reason, it's disappointment that sort of hangs over and oozes out of the account. When they're first approached by Jesus in verse 17, they stopped walking and looked discouraged. They're arguing about some aspect of what has taken place. This is not a celebratory seven mile jaunt over to Emmaus. It's a slow, disheartened slog. And as they're walking, we're told that they're talking about everything that has happened over the course of the last week. We've used this chart there's a lot that happens in the last week of Jesus's life. It's like a third of Luke's gospel account. And you can almost picture the conversations that are playing out between these two men. Like, It's hard to believe that it's only been a week. Remember when Jesus swept into the city to the cheers and the shouts of people and then he went on the hillside and he wept over the city? You remember the day he, we all went into the temple and he was teaching there and then he runs everybody out who are selling Remember the chaos of that scene? Can you believe it was Judas, one of his closest followers that ended up betraying him? Yeah, I'll never get the image out of my head of Jesus carrying that cross outside the city. And they grabbed that random man. What was his name, Simon? Made him help Jesus get that cross out to the hill. I still just can't believe he's dead and I don't know what to make out of the women who claim that he's not. And somewhere in the middle of all of that, they're arguing over the details and they're approached by a man that they don't recognize, but we're told right at the outset is Jesus. And Jesus wants to know what the argument is about. And in one of scripture's most fantastic moments, Cleopas says to Jesus, are you the only person in Jerusalem who isn't aware of the things that have happened here? And Jesus looks back and says, what things? This moment is unbelievable. Are you the only guy who doesn't know what's happened here? And Jesus is probably thinking to himself, I'm the only guy who actually knows what happened here. But why don't you tell me what you think has taken place? Why in the world would Jesus ask that? Well, this is the heart of Jesus in relationship with his people. We've seen throughout Luke that Jesus can read people's thoughts and hearts. He does not need to be told what someone is thinking or feeling. That was true while he was on the earth in his ministry. It's true today. He certainly does not need to be told the events that happened to him that led to his death and then his triumphant resurrection. And yet, he draws these disciples out. Not for the sake of information, but for the sake of relationship. That's the heart of Jesus in relationship with his people. And just like all of your relationships, intimacy develops through vulnerability. When Jesus says, What things, he does not primarily need a recounting of events. It's the heart of the Savior to draw his people out. We're told in Hebrews 4 15 and 16 that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. And so what does he do? He draws these two men out. In verse 19, they start reciting the facts. Well, it's, it's about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a, pow, a prophet, powerful in action and in speech before God and the people. Our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. Jump down to verse 22. Some women from the group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb. His body wasn't there. Some of the disciples got up and ran there and they found the tomb empty and there's talk of these angels who said that Jesus was alive but no one has seen the body and stuffed right into the middle of all of that is the vulnerable part. Verse 21, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel, but it's the third day and no one has seen him. The disappointment is lodged right into the middle of that. Facts, 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 facts. We thought this was the guy. Facts, 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 facts. Jesus is drawing that out from them. He knows their thoughts and their feelings, but he wants his people, to bring to him their weakness and their vulnerabilities so that he can meet you with mercy and with grace. And it's in that place that relationship and and depth of relationship with the Lord is formed. Not as you come before him and recite your circumstances. He knows the circumstances. And it's not primarily about the recitation of your thoughts and your feelings in the midst of them. He knows those too. It's about the intersection of those weaknesses and his mercy and grace and our vulnerability and his sufficiency slamming into one another. That's where depth of relationship is. And he draws that out of Cleopas and this other follower of his. And then like the women at the tomb in the morning, they get a little rebuke. He said, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Look, anyone can recite facts about Jesus. But salvation has never been about the recitation of facts. It's about the receiving of grace. The issue for Jesus is not they don't understand the facts. The issue is they don't believe. It's not how foolish you are to not get the facts right. It's how foolish and slow you are to believe that these are the things that had to happen to the Messiah in order for him to redeem Israel. Salvation is by grace through faith in the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Salvation is not by reciting the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Salvation is not by intellectually understanding the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's about belief. God's grace through faith in who Jesus is. In the middle of all of that sort of vulnerability and weakness and everything that's going on there, Cleopas and this other individual get waylaid by the mercy and grace of Jesus intersecting with their disappointment and their difficulty to believe. And that grace and mercy arrives in what Thabiti on Yabwile calls the mother of all Bible studies. Jesus says, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, that's a shorthand way of saying all of the Old Testament scriptures, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That's the mercy and grace of Jesus saying, oh, you're foolish and slow to believe. Let me help you understand. And I will take you through all of the scriptures and show you that I am the one who has come to redeem Israel. And every page of scripture has been pointing to that from the very beginning. He opens up the scriptures, starts from the beginning, and shows how all of it points to him. I'm going to read a pretty extended quote here. Here. This is longer than would be my norm. Uh, It's from a woman named Nancy Guthrie. She's writing about this moment of Jesus walking through the scriptures with these two individuals. And she says in a few paragraphs what would take me seven or eight minutes to say not as well. So two pieces of this are going to show up on the screen, but it's sort of a lengthy quote. She says the following. Jesus was saying that they should have understood his, or that his crucifixion didn't negate his identity as the Messiah, but confirmed it. Because the death, the death of the Messiah was predicted and pictured and patterned throughout the Old Testament. In fact, each part of the Old Testament anticipates Christ's suffering and glory in its own way. The very first promise in the Old Testament of an offspring or descendant from Eve points directly to his suffering. God said that the serpent will, quote, bruise his heel. So from the first time a Savior was promised in the Old Testament, it was clear that the promised one would suffer but would emerge from that suffering as victor, putting an end to evil and suffering. Perhaps this promise is where Jesus began. Perhaps he continued in Genesis 22's account of Abraham, preparing to offer up Isaac, helping them to see how it pictured the father's sacrifice of his beloved son. Perhaps he pointed to Joseph and traced his downward spiral of suffering and slavery and imprisonment, as well as his glorious exaltation to power, and showed them how Joseph, who became a savior for the whole world through suffering and humiliation, revealed the pattern for how he, Jesus, would become the savior of the world. Perhaps Jesus worked through Exodus, pointing out the death of the Passover lamb, through Leviticus and its system of sacrifices, through the writings of David, who described his own suffering and exaltation in stretched language that went beyond his own experience to that of his greater son. She finishes, It was all there for them to see. Suffering precedes glory. Humiliation comes before exaltation. The suffering of the cross and the tomb gave way to the glory of the resurrection. And for those believers, foolishness gave way to belief. Confusion dissolved into understanding. Broken hearts became burning hearts. Sorrow turned to joy. Following that Bible study, broken hearts became burning hearts. That's where all of this ends up leading. They arrive at Emmaus in verse 28. They have the impression that Jesus is going to go on further. He's not going to impose upon their hospitality. We don't do that in our day. They didn't do that in their day. And as Jesus is getting ready to continue on, they urge him to stay. But note, they still don't know who this is. It's just some man who opened up the scriptures and blew their mind by showing how all of scripture has pointed to a suffering Messiah who would redeem Israel. So they urge him to stay. He goes in to stay with them. They sit down for a meal Jesus somehow becomes the host of that meal. He's the one breaking the bread. He blessed it and he broke it. He gives it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized that it was Jesus. And then he disappears. And I have no explanation for that. I, I do not know exactly what that means or entails. But after Jesus disappears, they reflect on the day. And in verse 32, they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us? while he was talking to us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them gathered together. And it's the 11 who say, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. So by the time these two get there and encounter the disciples, others have seen the resurrected Jesus. Simon has, we don't get any details on it. But then Cleopas and this other man begin to describe what happened to them, and everyone's rejoicing in the fact that we now have evidence. We've seen Jesus is resurrected and alive. The women saw the empty tomb, they heard the encouragement of the angels. Simon Peter, at some point, saw the resurrected Jesus. These two men see Jesus, heard him teach the scriptures. And now there's confirmation. He's resurrected. This is the redeemer of Israel, the savior of the world. And now pastorally, here's what I want to offer you this morning. It is the presence and the reality of Jesus that light a flame in the hearts of his people. Hearts that burn with a passion for Jesus do not have to be some mystical, magical Difficult, confounding, fleeting thing. Think about our passage this morning. What was happening when Cleopas and the other follower of Jesus had hearts that were burning within them? They were with Jesus, and from scripture they saw him clearly. That's it. It's not complicated or difficult. There's the presence of Jesus. And the reality of who he is, and those two things together cause these hearts to burn with passion. Let's just take both of those briefly. If we're going to be people who have hearts that burn with a passion for Jesus, we would be wise to consider, acknowledge, and enjoy the continual presence of Christ. This is is one of the great glories of life with Jesus on this side of his death, resurrection, and ascension. We're not bound to time and space interaction with Jesus like the disciples were. We can be and we are with Jesus all the time thanks to his sending of the spirit. If you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, then you are always with him because he sealed you with his spirit. In the gospel of John, Jesus literally tells the disciples that it will be to their benefit for him to go away and for the spirit to come. And this is why. You're always with him. Our problem in this arena is not with Jesus's presence. It's with our awareness of and enjoyment of his presence. We're often too busy, too distracted, or too interested in the fleeting things of this world to stop, consider, acknowledge, and enjoy the presence of Christ in our midst. I'll say that again. Our problem in this realm is not with Jesus' presence. Our problem is with our awareness and enjoyment of his presence. Because we're often too busy, too distracted, or too interested in the fleeting things of this world to stop, consider, acknowledge, and enjoy the presence of Christ in our midst. One of the recurring themes that our pastoral staff heard in the midst of COVID, all of the, particularly like the really intense, like we were all staying at home parts of COVID, is that despite all the stuff that COVID took away from us and all the difficulties and challenges there was a recognition of the blessing of how life just slowed down. We're just home together. There's less stuff stuff on the calendar. We're not rushing from thing to thing like we typically do. The pace had slowed down. And then as soon as we sort of started getting life and society back to normal, it was not very long before people were lamenting the busyness. Ah, we're just back to running around like crazy. We've got sports practices all the time and we got these other engagements that we need to go to and I just sort of miss the slowness. Brothers and sisters, nothing gets on your calendar that you don't give permission to. Like you've got to, you've got to give permission to that thing to be on your calendar and so one encouragement in this arena would be slow down the pace of your life. Decide what level of busyness you want to endure and then schedule toward that. You're the keeper of your calendar. You're the one who sets the pace of your life. It's not just the pace of our life that's sort of out of control. It's the pace of our minds. We have devices at our disposal 24 hours a day that have an endless stream of social media feeds and content and media consumption. And for most of us, from the moment we wake up and grab that phone and we see the notifications we missed overnight to the moment we lay down, and typically we're not yet tired, so we lay down and we scroll endlessly on Facebook or Instagram. We're watching videos until it's finally time to go to sleep. Your brain never gets a break. And you go at breakneck speed from the moment you wake up to the moment you lay down. And with a pace of life that's out of control and the pace of our mind racing out of control, it's no surprise that the pace of our hearts are too fast for us to stop and consider and acknowledge and enjoy the presence of the Savior among us. It's hard for our heart to see the glory of God in the world around us. It's hard to slow our heart down enough to look for the movement or the presence of Christ in our daily circumstances. I mean, even think about Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings. I mean, one thing that's like hardwired into being a follower of Jesus is that there's this point on Sunday mornings where we block out the schedule so that we can literally stop the pace of our life and come into a place like this, slow our minds down so that we can think about the wonder of the gospel and allow our hearts to engage with the presence of Christ. And yet, we often allow the demands of the rest of our lives to encroach upon this time. So we're not regularly stopping to worship together. Sometimes we're in here and we're using our phone as our Bible or whatever. And so we're doing our best to track along, but we keep getting the notifications across the top that so-and-so has texted or such and such an email has come in or during the chief season, you get the notification in third service that the chiefs have scored or the other team has scored and we're doing our best to stay focused, but our minds are racing the whole time, and then it's time to enter into worship through song, and we're thinking about the argument that we had in the car on the way here, or we don't like this particular song, and so our hearts are having trouble engaging. And we do that for a few months on end, and we look around our church, and we say, there's a problem with this place. I don't feel God here. Well, did you give yourself any, like, did you participate enough that you would have any chance To have stopped and acknowledged and enjoyed the presence of the Lord and among the body of believers that you came to worship with? well, I'll just think I'll go somewhere else. Well, I'll tell you, it's not gonna be any better anywhere else. Like this place is not perfect. It doesn't match everybody's sensibilities or preferences or whatever the case might be. There are wonderful churches all around Liberty in the Northland that you could go to, but the presence of the Lord is not housed inside of here. And if we like get the songs right, then we'll really feel him. The presence of the Lord comes in with the people of the Lord. And so every Sunday when our church gathers, the presence of the Lord is among us because He's in us. We're in Him. And we've got to be able to stop long enough to consider and acknowledge and enjoy the presence of the Lord. Then there's a second piece of this. If we want hearts that burn with passion inside of us, we need to be intentional in the lifelong pursuit of seeing Jesus clearly. Now you might say, Tim, these two didn't even know that it was Jesus. And one of the beauties of this passage is that they saw Jesus clearly the same way we teach our hearts and our minds to see Jesus clearly, through scripture. Jesus opened up the scripture for them and then they saw him clearly. These two things work together. We get better at seeing and acknowledging and enjoying the presence of Jesus in our midst when we increasingly learn the truth and the fullness of who he is as he's been revealed to us in scripture. The way we see him clearly is to cut through all the outside opinions that there are about Jesus and about Christianity and to go to the pages of scripture and see him there. Pick your page. The Old Testament narrative displays humanity's deep need for him and God's faithfulness to send the savior, his son, on behalf of his people. The Old Testament prophets predict and proclaim and point to his future arrival. The gospels describe him and his ministry. The epistles explains what it means to live in response to him and to the gospel. Revelation reminds us that he's going to return and everything that that entails. Pick your page. The savior is there. and You can get to know him clearly, but you've got to pick a page. You've got to slow down long enough to read and commit your life. To the process of understanding him clearly as he's been revealed to us in scripture. And the great joy in this is that like Cleopas and his buddy, you have the presence of Christ with you in the person of the Holy Spirit to help you see Jesus clearly. You don't have to do this on your own. You're not left to the task solo. Take a walk with Jesus through the pages of scripture and allow him by the power of his, his spirit to interpret for you the things concerning himself in all of scripture. And as we slow life down so that we can enjoy the presence of Jesus and we engage in the process of seeing the reality of Jesus, he lights a flame in the hearts of his people. If we want hearts that burn within us with a passion for Jesus, we ought to rejoice and rest in his presence And commit ourselves to seeing him clearly in scripture that can be the daily lived experience for every follower of jesus it doesn't have to be something that's only available at certain times it doesn't have to be this mysterious thing that we're trying to pin down with the right worship service or the right place or a manicured week at camp or whatever the case might be there will always be highs and lows the ebbs and flows of emotion just like in any relationship as you walk with jesus but one thing that we can do is raise the floor by regularly rejoicing in his presence and seeing him clearly in scripture so that the lows aren't so low, so that our hearts burn with passion. and Sometimes that passion gets stoked up another level because of something and sometimes it comes down to just a low boil all the time inside the hearts of his people. One of the ways that we do this within the context of our services is through taking communion. We enjoy the presence of the Lord We see him clearly. We want to do that this morning. So if you're someone who's going to pass out the elements, we take these and begin to...